Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, we talk about the early Iron Age of Korea. And that's another classic by Luna Lee playing her Korean Gaigam, which is the uh, Korean zither. And there's a link to our YouTube page in the show notes. Today we cover the early Iron Age, defined broadly in the Korean region from around 500 BCE to 500 CE. If you want to know why this period is so important, it's because it's when Korean is born, so to speak. There is no question that Korea as a polity or state was born during this time, but the devil is in the details. In fact, this entire episode is structured more like a whodunit mystery novel than anything else, the chief question being... What is Gojoseon? When, who, and even where is Gojoseon? For this episode, I rely a great deal on the excellent work of Gina Lee Barnes, whose work encompasses Japan, Korea, and China. She's either an American or British scholar um, who was schooled in both America and, uh, and the UK. In her excellent book, State Formation in Korea, she boils it down to three main controversies. Number one, the development the developmental status of the early polities. Number two, whether they were created by foreign populations or developed as native institutions. That's a big one. And three, the main technological or organizational factors in the emergence of the societies. So I, before I begin this episode, I'm going to have uh, both a disclaimer and and a couple of preambles. And they're kind of long, and, and I'd like to get to this story just as much as you would. But Due to kind of the controversial nature of a lot of the topics we're going to be discussing, it's really appropriate and I think helpful for us to put some context down. So the disclaimer is that there are many differing viewpoints and interpretations, and I'll give you a very uh, of this era um, from all sides, whether the historians are Korean, Chinese, Japanese, American, Western, etc. And I've mentioned this in other podcasts, but it's really important enough to repeat here. So the origins of Korea have always been disputed by larger neighbors for reasons both domestic and international. Since as early as the Zhou dynasty, some in China have laid claim to the origins of Korea. We'll see later in this episode that much of what we know about ancient Korea was written centuries later in both Korea and China, further complicating the picture. Later, the Manchurians in the 12th century and afterwards, and then the Mongols in the 13th century, each also tried to craft the origin story of Korea for their own purposes. And of course, first in the 16th century, when Japan first invaded Korea, and much more significantly in the 20th century, it was Japan that tried to craft the story, going so far as to hide or tamper with archaeological evidence. One narrative that Japan wanted was to paint the picture that Korea was never an independent state, and that it was either controlled by China or was a part of China from the very beginning. They also wanted to show a commonality between Korea and Japan, obviously with Japan as the dominant partner, thus painting a picture that they were the saviors of Korea from the unwanted grip of China. In some cases, they went as far as to claim that ancient Japan controlled Korea. We'll see from archaeological evidence that actually the opposite was more likely, and we're probably going to cover that in the next episode, actually. Later, the Americans, mostly unaware, accepted much of Japan's research as fact, and thus contributed, albeit um, unknowingly, to perpetuating many of these falsehoods. And to this day, there's still a lot of historical inaccuracies that have their provenance in Japanese post-war 
uh, or you know, colonial research that is, uh, that is accepted as fact. And of course, the last perpetrators are the Koreans themselves. It was only in the late 20th century that Koreans finally had the resources to begin to participate fully in the archaeology and historiography of their country during ancient times. In some cases, in reaction to the real injustices caused to them by foreign powers, they sought to swing the pendulum the opposite way. Much as some Japanese and Chinese have at times embellished, exaggerated, or outright misrepresented the truth for their own aims, so too did the Koreans. And uh, as Barnes uh, puts so well in her book, I, I, I don't want to paraphrase it because she put it so well. I'll read you a quote of, of her take on it. So, quote, uh, This shift in uh, ideological preference seems to stem from two causes. On the one hand, rising national consciousness, and on the other, the adoption of anthropological viewpoints according to which the demonstration of indigenous rather than imposed origins seems to bestow more scholarly value and native prestige on a society being studied, unquote. And I think what she's saying there is, and, and you're probably recognizing this in, in you know, other parts of the world as well, there's been a real movement in you know, pretty much every country in the world to claim their origin story as their own. So, hey, we started, uh, we, we materialized uh, out of thin air on our land. No foreign power was um, contributed to our, the, to our origin story. And Korea is uh, pretty similar in that respect. As is so often the case, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. And so my goal is to find the most likely scenario, relying on science to be the often uh, ultimate arbiter, but not always. First of all, this is not unique to Korea. Uh, as I mentioned, China and Japan are even greater perpetrators of politicizing history. But why don't we find similar things in the ancient history of England, for example? Well. Britain never really had the same kind of existential threat. I mean, obviously, they had an existential threat last century when Germany tried to bomb them into oblivion, but it was never a question of whether they belonged or owned their land or had a right to be there. I guess, you know, the most obvious comparable outside of Asia would be Israel. And you could kind of see some of the tactics that Israel employs in order to protect its land and its borders. And part of that has to do with uh, controlling and controlling the narrative of their origin. Um, so that's my rather long disclaimer, but I mean, it has to be said, and I, I'm, I, you know, coming from the Korean end of things, I think it's worth repeating over and over again that, um, in, in the battle of politicizing history, Korea was not the one to fire the first, uh, salvo. It was fired, uh, really at them by other powers. And so this is kind of a race where you have to shout um, to be heard above all the shouting all around you, because if you don't shout as loud as everyone else, you're just not going to be heard. Uh, so this comes to my second, uh, my first preamble, which has to do with terminology. I'm going to introduce some new terminology that may not be known to the layperson, and because certainly wasn't known to me before. Um, I am a layperson. The difference between prehistory, protohistory, and history. So prehistory means what happens to a people before they wrote about themselves prehistoric man. History means a people have written about what happened while it was happening. Proto-history occupies kind of a, of a, a no man's land in between. For example, the people who are written about by a foreign source. In this case, 
The Chinese began to write about the Koreans before the Koreans began writing themselves. That's proto-history. Another example of proto-history is where a people write about their write about their history after the fact, and that also happens in Korea during this time. Although we haven't yet discovered writings by Koreans during Gojoseon, we do have documents such as the Samguk Sagi and the Samguk Yusa, written in the 12th and 13th centuries respectively, that reference materials long gone that were presumably written contemporary with or shortly after the events of that time. Until we find those sources, we must consider that period of Korean history to be proto-historic. Second preamble, and we're almost we're almost to the point where we actually talk about the history. Uh, so it's worth really mentioning and listing the, the historical documents that we're going to be referring to, because um, each of them are actually, you know, monumental undertakings in their own right. And we will be referring back to them for many, many uh, other episodes as well. The first one is called the Shiji, and it's probably the most important one for this episode. It's written by a Chinese historian named Shima Qian. I'm probably butchering that, that name, by the way. Um, I have his traditional Chinese names um, in the show notes. He lived from circa 145 BCE to 86 BCE during the Han, Di- um, during the Han Dynasty. Uh, but he actually talks about the Zhou period of uh, China and its peripheral relations. And uh, quick, quick side note, um, Shima Qian was actually castrated by the emperor um, for, you know, protesting against the emperor. But because he felt it was his life's uh, responsibility and duty to finish his work, he actually did most of his writing um, after that uh, brutal torture. And now he's been canonized by China and pretty much every other country that um, he wrote about as, a, as kind of the grand historian. Second one is the Weiji, or Chronicles of the Wei Dynasty, compiled by uh, Zhen Shao, 233 to 297 BCE, uh, sorry, Common Era, CE, as a record of events during the Wei Dynasty. The Weiji exists as part of the Sanguoji, or Chronicles of the Three Kingdoms, the official histories of the Chinese dynasties of Wei, Shu Han, and Wu, which comprise the Chinese Three Kingdoms period from 220 to 280. The third one is the Hu Han Shu, Chronicles of the Later Han Dynasty, AD 23 to 220, compiled between 398 and 445 and based on the Weiji, despite the Han Dynasty having occurred earlier than the Wei. These records were all written approximately contemporaneously with a phenomena on the Korean Peninsula, which we described in this episode. The original Korean accounts of the state's early histories, however, have not survived. Uh, We know that they existed because later works reference them. We just don't have the original works, unfortunately. The only uh, and so only later works incorporated this material um, and covered these periods res- retrospectively. And these are, as you probably know, the two you know most important seminal documents uh, for Korea um, in old times. The first one is the 12th century Samguk Sagi, uh, and then this uh, written by uh, Kim Bushik in 1145, and then Samguk Yusa, which was written by the monk Irion in the 13th century. All right. So let's actually talk about history. If you recall, we last left off when we visited the Mumun culture of Korea, which lasted roughly 550 to 300 BCE. Unlike their precursors, we know this Neolithic culture to have a largely sedentary culture with farming and social stratification. From their burial mounds, we know they have socially important leaders, There is evidence of conflict between groups of people and a consolidation of smaller groups into larger groups. 
what happens from the Mumun era to 108 BC is not in debate. In a very general sense, a Korean state is first documented into history by the Chinese. But how that happened and in what and in what chronology is a matter of intense debate. We can't rely on contemporary writing sources because we don't have them anymore, and we know they existed because later writings cite them. If we rely on the next best thing, which are historical records closer to that time, we see many inconsistencies. We see from the Chinese records a distinct political bias in their favor. The Korean histories written after the fact are much too late, and they are written almost a millennia afterwards, and they also come along with a healthy dose of, dose of historical baggage. So I'm going to start mostly in order, and I will be quoting, and I'll be kind of mentioning whether these historical statements are widely accepted as fact, or that they are myths, or they are something in between. And believe it or not, uh, we do have uh, things like that occurring during this, uh, this time period. So let's start with what is incon incontrovertible. The first fact is sometime around the 3rd or 4th century BCE, Chinese texts began to refer to an area to the east, which they called Chaoxian. I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly in Chinese. I have the Chinese characters in the show notes. The two Chinese characters stand for Chao or morning and Xian or fresh or calm. The modern-day Korean pronunciation is Joseon, and thus we have the first name for Korea ever. If, you ever, if you've ever heard of the phrase, quote, land of the morning calm, unquote, it can trace its roots back to this translation or transliteration or interpretation of the word, depending on uh, what your source is. Even this name is kind of in dispute. Some say Chow actually didn't stand for morning, but for court. There's also some debate as to whether the, ch the characters for Joseon was used to approximate the sound of the local or Chinese names for that place. There's even some scholars who say that Joseon is a translation of Asadal, the capital of Joseon. The most commonly accepted view, though, is that Joseon was named by the Chinese for the area just east of the Yan Kingdom, which at the time was the farthest Chinese state in the east. If you look on a map, it's basically around the Bohai Bay, um, it may or may not have encompassed the Laodong uh, Peninsula, but of course, immediately east of Laodong Peninsula is present-day North Korea. Therefore, it would make sense for the Chinese to call that area Joseon, or fresh morning, since the morning sun hits Joseon before China. In the same way, the Chinese would name Riben, or Japan, whose characters stand for new or rising sun. You may know that Joseon is also the name given to the state that was formed in 1392 by Yi Songye. To distinguish this first state, we put the character for ancient or old, pronounced Go in modern Korean, in front. So, put together, we call, we refer to this state, Joseon, as Go Joseon. From here on out, I will refer to the geographical region as, as Chaoshan uh, and as a state as Gojo-san, just to uh, make it clear. But just know that they are essentially represented by the same uh, Chinese characters, just with different pronunciations. Joseon is also famously adopted by North Korea as their official state name. Uh, we will talk all about the politics and the history behind that in a much, much, much later episode. That's uh, we're, we're about 2,000 2, years uh, um, away from that so far. 
But at this point in history, we can say that certainly North Korea has just as good a claim or even greater claim to this historic name because of its geographic location. And as we'll be discussing very soon, um, we think Chaoshan was actually closer to North Korea than South Korea. So where Chaoshan is, is also a matter of some debate. Experts disagree um, where, that, where, where it is exactly. So in Zhou times, Chaoshan is described as lying east of the state of Yan. In the next two periods, it's stated as bordering the Laodong commandery of the Qin and Han states. We'll be talking about commanderies in our next episode, I think. Based on this description, it would place Chaoshan as encompassing the Laodong peninsula. From the Shiji, I quote, When Yan was at the height of its power, it invaded and conquered the regions of Chenpan and Chaoshan, appointing officials to rule the area and setting up fortifications along the frontier. When the Han arose, however, it regarded the region as too far away and difficult to guard and rebuilt the fortifications at the old border of Laodong, leaving the area beyond as far as a Pei River to be administered by the king of Yen. Unquote. Uh, in the meantime, Koreans argue that it was more east of there, east of even the Yalu River. And, you know, you may, you could probably kind of guess the, the political motivations of of the Koreans saying, hey, Chaoxian was actually closer to modern-day Korea, whereas the Chinese are saying it was actually more towards uh, us in the Laodong Peninsula. But if you synthesize uh, both views, um, we we understand Gojo-san to... In other words, what we're saying is they're both right. Gojo-san, Gojo-san or actually Chaoxian, to be more to be more clear, was actually a really large area, and it probably encompassed all of Yaodong into North Korea, even, and to even parts of South Korea, um, around kind of where Seoul is. And there's uh, there's uh, archaeological and uh, historical evidence to corroborate that viewpoint. So in this case, we can say, hey, you're both right. But, you know, geograph geography and where it's located is nothing compared to the debate over when and by whom Gojo-sun was founded. And this is where things get really interesting. So uh, now that we've kind of talked about geography, um, we're still at around 300 BC, let's say, which is why I'm going to talk about, um, take a quick detour to talk about a myth. The myth is called Gija Joseon. Um, it's commonly referred to as, uh, well, in Korea, it's pronounced Gija Joseon. In Chinese, it's Jiji or Kiji or uh, Kiji, Kitsu. In our last episode, we talked about the legend of Dangun, which Koreans do accept as part of their founding myth, at least for now. This myth, however, has been rejected. But from around the Goryeo era, when we first see mention of Gija, to around 20th century, early 20th century, Koreans accepted Gija as part of their founding myth. Gija is a legendary Chinese sage who is said to have ruled Joseon in the 11th century BCE. Just for context, that's about 500 years before the time we're actually covering at the moment. So right off the bat, you're kind of questioning how accurate this is. He was a relative of the last king of the Shang dynasty, King Zhou. King Zhou imprisoned his relative for remonstrating against him. When King Zhou was overthrown by the Zhao dynasty, I know that's confusing. They're Romanized in the same way, but they actually have different characters. The new King Wu, the new King Wu of the incoming Zhao dynasty freed Gija. So up to this point, we we do believe that he is a historical figure. Uh, there's there's you know a lot of record of him existing during this time period. But the next point is very controversial and largely rejected by historians. 
The earliest known source stating that Jizi went to Joseon is the Shangshu Dazhuan, a commentary on the Book of Documents attributed to Fu Shang of the 2nd century BC. In other words, 800 years after the fact. These texts mention that Gijia was enfuffed by King Wu as ruler of Chaoxian. On the one hand, this is great news for Koreans because now it moves the timeline for the founding of Gojoseon to 1100 BC. And we know from the the uh, the myth of Dangun that Koreans love to say they love to move the founding of their nation as far back in history as possible because then it gives them the ammunition to say, hey, we are, you know, not uh, founded by a foreign power like China or anything like that. We we are indigenous. On the other hand, it clearly shows that China was in control of Chaoxian back then. Later, the Shiji, written again in the Han Dynasty era of around 100 BCE, um, which is a really important document for ancient Korea, also states that Gijo was enfuffed by King Wu. However, this statement is not in the same section as the one which talks about Gojoseon. So we don't know whether he was enfuffed for the area of Gojoseon or some other area somewhere in China. Later, much actually much later, in 1145, that's CE, the Samguk Sagi would pick up this story. Uh, Gim Bushik claimed that Gija had been enfuffed in Hedong, uh, which is an old name for Korea, by the Zhou court, but, but commented that this account was uncertain because of the brevity of the sources. And later in the 13th century, the Samguk Yusa says, quote, Later, Dangun moved his capital to Asadan on Tibeksan and ruled 1,500 years until King Wu of Zhou placed Gija on the throne, uh, traditional date 1122 BC. When Gija arrived, Dangun moved to Changtanggyeong and then returned to Asadal, where he became a mountain god at the age of 1908. Unquote. So the bottom line is, if we accept that Gojo-san did not exist until at least 300-400 BCE, as most historians now believe, we must accept that the legend of Gija Joseon is is just that. So I'm going to give you the second fact, and this is uh, incontrovertible, or you know, more or less widely accepted by every historian. In 195 BCE, historian uh, Gina, Barne, Gina Barnes writes that references in the uh, Zhang Guoche, the Shan Hai Jing, and the Shiji start referring to Joseon as a Guo instead of a region. So Guo is the very, very um, uh, common, commonly used uh, term for country or nation or state. Um, so in Chinese, it's Guo. In, in Korean, it's Kuk. In uh, Japanese, it's uh, Kuk. So as you can tell, they're all, they all have the same provenance. This perhaps is the first historical evidence of Proto-Korea as a distinct polity. But despite the foregoing evidence, scholars, mainly Western scholars, hesitate to recognize Gojoseon as a state during this time. As a point of reference, remember that the Roman Empire was very closely a contemporary to the Han Dynasty. Both were founded roughly the same time at around 200 BCE. So at this period in time, the first Romans would land on England and start trading with the tribes there, roughly uh, maybe 200, 100 BCE. In that respect, Joseon was probably in a similar position to their British contemporaries. The Brits had allied with the Gauls, whom the Romans considered their enemy. Joseon, in turn, had allied with the Xiongnu, 
who are causing all kinds of trouble for the Chinese. There are some key differences, however. The Brits started working with iron much er earlier, around 700 BC, while Joseon wouldn't really see or work with iron extensively until around 300 BC, when they would presumably trade for it from their neighbors, the Yan, who were actually the biggest iron producers in China at the time. According to many Korean scholars, they would argue that Joseon was a unified polity by the time Han attacked, while there is no such comparable claim by British historians. So here we come to the third uh, story, and this is not an incontrovertible fact, but it's not a myth either. So I'll kind of explain, uh, and you can kind of make your you can make your own decision. Uh, it concerns the Weimon Joseon. Some call it the third founding myth of Korea, but a lot of historic historians don't think it's a myth at all, that it's actually history. So, so far we have two uh, founding myths of Korea. We we talked about Dangun, which is accepted by Korea, uh, today's Koreans as their creation myth. Then there's the Gija myth, which we just discuss, discussed, which is currently rejected. And now there's this third one called Wiman Joseon. And again, I, I probably wouldn't lump sum it as a myth. I think it is a... Uh, a piece of history, albeit a debatable one, or with, with lots of holes in it. Um, if you had to rank whether this was true or not, you'd rank it way higher than the other two, uh, as I just mentioned. So this is how it goes. When Liu Bang, Liu Bang reunified China as a Han dynasty in 202 BCE, he appointed a number of kings to function as vassals. One of them was the King of Yan, uh, which we know as the basically the area of China most closest to Korea, or uh, Chaoshan at the time. In 195 BCE, King Yan revolted and allied with the Xiongnu. Uh, the Xiongnu, we can, we can have a whole episode on Xiongnu and, uh, and, and on all the tribes of the north, but the Xiongnu were like a nomadic people, very akin to the Khitan or the Mongols or the, uh, you know, the various tribes up there. And at the time, they were actually quite a big presence and a huge uh, pox in the hide of, of the Chinese. The Shiji records that one of his lieutenants, uh, that is uh, Liu Bang's, uh, the king of Yan's lieutenants, a man named Wiman, fled with a thousand followers to Joseon, where the king of Joseon, presumably called Jun, appointed him as frontier commander. Wiman, however, with the help of the Chinese diaspora living in Joseon at the time, seized power and thus took over Joseon. He is, said, he is said to have established his capital at Wanggamsang, uh, which various Korean historians place either near present-day Pyongyang or Yodong in Laodong, China. This occurred somewhere, uh, sometime between 194 and 180 BCE. He and his descendants would rule Joseon until around 108 BCE. Note that the Shiji was written by Shima Qian, who died in 145 BCE, so he died around 50 years after the fact after the event that he's covering. It's kind of a similar timeline to Leo Tolstoy, by the way, who wrote about the War of 1812 around 50 years after the fact. Of course, Tolstoy never passed off his writing as pure history. In fact, he may have been the first to write a historical novel, but I digress. My point is, it's a short enough period to pass for history, although technically it's proto-history. But part of the reason Wiman Joseon is contested has to do with, number one, lack of archaeological evidence to support it uh, so far, and two, references to Weimann that are somewhat suspect. So Barnes writes that, quote, the way Lue 
a mid-third century text quoted in the preface to the Sangwoji, records that Wimon actually usurped the rulership of the existing Gija dynasty from a king named Jun, and thus took over the kingship of the state of Joseon. Um, in other words, this bit of writing references Gija, which we spoke earlier, um, was discredited. Um, but if you read any general history of Korea written in English, you will find um, that Wimon is included as history, and I personally subscribe to that as well. The third and final fact for this episode is incontrovertible, at least by you know most historians, and notably is finally where Western scholars in particular agree to be fact. And so after all that history, this is where most Western scholars say, I, I, um, I believe 100% that this is fact. And that is, in 108 BCE, the newly united Han Dynasty waged war on the peoples east of their borders and won. And these people are basically Gojo-san. And this is where we're going to end the episode because from here on out, the, the documentation of history from the Chinese side is plentiful and much, much clearer. Uh, not to say that there aren't going to be controversies, controversies coming up in the future, but there's a lot more documentation and we're just a lot more certain about things that happen from here on out. And it gets a little more interesting, uh, to be honest. I mean, we actually get to read a lot of uh, what the Chinese write about Korea. The, the Koreans wouldn't actually, st we won't discover writing from the Koreans themselves for, I think, another couple of hundred years. But there's plenty of uh, evidence from the Chinese side because with the Han uh, newly unified and with and you know their power centralized, you see um, them start to treat not just Koreans but all their neighbors to the east and to the north as well um, with a lot more thoughtfulness because uh, they're a lot more unified in their response. They want to be a lot more unified in their responses. Um, as a point of reference, um, Caesar would um, um, attack the island of. Britain around this time as well, uh, 55 BC. And that also kind of pulls the island of Britain into legitimately into the sphere of the Roman Empire. And that's when you start to see um, a lot more documentation on the English, uh, English side as well. So there's a lot of parallels to be drawn from the experience of the English and the Koreans, at least during this time. Obviously, uh, in the future, they diverge quite a bit. So I'll, I'll end this episode with... Uh, a conclusion about how we should view um, what we talked about in this episode. So with all the controversy, basically who are who and what are we to believe? You have scientists and historians from China and Korea and Japan and the U.S. and the West all disagreeing, um, and it, it kind of seems like they're all biased in their own way. Um, it's not a clear answer for me of, of who to believe. Because obviously I believe that science should be the final arbiter of the truth. Evidence-based conclusions should dictate what we consider history versus myth. But rarely is a world that clear-cut. And if we were to only rely on such evidence, we'd be the worst detectives in the world. I mean, being a detective isn't just like looking at the evidence. It's about using your intelligence to you know, connect the dots. And you're not always going to have perfect evidence. In the absence of such evidence, what can we do? I'm always reminded, and, and, and normally I would say, well, let's just reserve judgment until, um, let's just be super skeptical. Let's just only believe what is clearly 
um, recorded in the histories and that have clear archaeological evidence. But then I'm always reminded of what happened to with the Xing dynasty. So up until around 1920, the Western world believed that the Xing dynasty was just a flight of fancy in the same way that they believe the Xi'a dynasty is a myth today. The fantastical descriptions of a powerful, rich kingdom that existed 2,000 years before the birth of, you know, another fantastical character named Jesus Christ seemed like so much fantasy, you know, the irony, uh, seemed like so much fantasy to the Western world. And yet in 1899, like in an Indiana Jones movie, a pharmacist in Beijing discovered what looked like ancient script written on some fossilized cattle bones. Long story short, it led to the archaeological treasure of more than 50 large buildings, including football field-sized tombs, completely vindicating the written record of China and placing into history one of the world's greatest civilizations. When you think of the the three great uh, founding civilizations of China, it's the Xi'a dynasty, which is, you know, way back when. Then you have the Shang, then you have the Zhou. For the longest time, uh, that's what historians called uh, the three dynasties, the three mythical dynasties. And yet, out of the blue, we find real historical evidence of the Shang dynasty. So the history of Korea has yet to be fully uncovered, not the least of which is due to the treasure trove that must be North Korea. How many of Korea's so-called fanciful myths will become history from discoveries found there? There's also a strain of unwarranted skepticism regarding Korea's claims to ancient kingdoms that you just don't see applied to Western societies. I quote from a book that I otherwise respect a lot. Um, quote, modern Koreans see ancient Joseon as an ancestor to their nation, but there is no clear evidence linking it with any particular ethnic group or culture, unquote. And this was written by Michael Seth in his book, A History of a Concise History of Korea, which I rely on a lot, and otherwise I think it's it's really fair. But that statement just seems a little unnecessary, and and I wonder if he would apply the same kind of skepticism to England, for example. When you read the history of England, there's no skepticism of whether the early Iron Age societies in Britain, first discovered by the Euroman Empire in 100 BCE, are related to today's English people. I mean, it's it's basically just given. So with that, I'll end this episode. Um, it was a very controversial. There's a lot of controversy during this era. I promise that the next, uh, from here on out, it's not as bad. Not because there isn't a lot of politics involved, but because there's just a lot more evidence. Thanks and take care.